as our band slowly meanders off the stage, I'd ask you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 this morning. You know, it's really cool. Last night I got the opportunity to, uh, to speak at Gabe's prom, which, you know, I don't, I've never been to a prom where they ask somebody to come and be a guest speaker, right? So, you know me, I'm not a guest speaker. Like, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a public speaker in the sense that, you know, I'm going to get up and give you a rah-rah speech. I actually got to speak to um, the students of Smith Mountain Lake Christian Academy, juniors and seniors anyway, that went to their prom from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so it was pretty cool. Um, I just thought it was interesting how multi-purpose this, ta- this uh, text is. So let's stand together. We're going to read Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. We're going to focus primarily on verses 4 through 8 this morning, but I want to read it all. Um, I want to keep it in context. I want us to, to kind of be reminded of where we've been and, and see where we're going. And uh, so let's read this text together. This is the Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reason, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this text this morning, as we study these words that you have inspired the Apostle Paul to pen for us and that you preserve for us, and Lord God, that, um, that are necessary for us to hear, that we might grow in obedience and grow in faith and grow in submission to you. I pray that you would take these words and you would powerfully Father God, just apply them to our lives. Apply them to our lives. Apply them to the way that we think and the way that we act and the words that we speak. I pray, Father God, that these words won't go in one ear and out the other. We won't hear them as just um, helpful ideas or thoughts for a fulfilled life, but that we would hear them as they are, as the commands of God as necessary for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the body of Christ and so that we might put on display the majesty and the glory of Christ in our lives. Father, I know that apart from your, apart from your unction, apart from, Father, the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through me, that whatever words that I speak will be of none effect. And so I pray that you would grant me the unction of your spirit, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would 
Make me, Lord God, to be emptied of myself and to be filled with you so that my words are pleasing in your sight. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would be our teacher. That the response of everyone in this congregation, that our hearts would be together, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak to us. Let us hear what you have to say. Let us receive what we know is good for our souls. God, we are just in awe of you. We are grateful to you, are filled with gratitude for so many things. As Sam was, was praying, Lord God, it is true that apart from the, the perfect and, and Father, God-satisfying, law-fulfilling life and the sacrificial and atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no purchase with you at all. We would be objects of wrath under your rightful condemnation. So, Lord, we praise you that you have made us your children through the work of Christ. And help us now to learn how to be children that bring pleasure to the heart of Father God. So teach us in your word, I pray. Come again, meet with us, manifest yourself, magnify your glory in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. You know, beloved, in Romans chapter 12, right, Paul has been laying down some some vitally important truth for us, right? He's been making essential application to the way in which we live in light of the gospel of grace, this gospel that we've received, this gospel by which we have been saved. And his essential, you know, the essential heart of his message is this, that our salvation in Christ ought to make a true difference and who and in what we are. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? We ought to live and we ought to look much different than those in this world who do not know Christ. True or false? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if our theology, if our understanding of Scripture, if our theology is just brain candy and it doesn't impact the whole of our lives, then our theology is just a bunch of head knowledge and it's useless, isn't it? The gospel is not meant for us to, to just hear and, and believe and then sort of put in our back pocket and then go on. It's to make a difference in who and what we are, in our thinking, in our reasoning, in what we value, and in how we live, right? So we've looked at a series of very powerful statements from Paul, very important statements that Paul has made to us as he's been led and instructed by the Holy Spirit at the beginning here of Romans chapter 12. And I just want to briefly look at them again before we dig into the text this morning. First, look what he says to us in verse 1. He commands us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what he's getting at is this. Look, you, believer, have been a recipient of great mercy. You have received incomparable blessing and and grace from almighty god and because that is so each one of us is called to present ourselves that is everything that we are we are to present every faculty that we possess everything that we are lock stock and barrel to god as a living sacrifice for his purpose and for his pleasure and for his design to be used in the way that he pleases for his glory, right? 
In other words, we don't have any claims to ourselves anymore. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and not by perishable things like silver and gold, because we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are to consecrate the entirety of our lives to Him. All of our lives as an act of worship before the Lord. Now, some people look at this and they will say, well, that's just a, you know, that's an option. That's not something we have to do. That's an option. No, 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 beloved. This is not optional. This idea of presenting yourself unto the Lord is not optional. It's the very definition of what it means to be someone who has been purchased by grace and in gratitude understands what that grace demands. Those that run around in our world and claim to be Christians and never darken the doors of a church and never actually live in a manner that demonstrates that their lives are all in and all out for King Jesus. Those people are deluding themselves. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. There's no such thing as a half-covenant Christian. You're either in or you are out. And what Paul is saying to us, man, listen present yourself be all in because that's what you've been redeemed to be and then he directs us in verse two look at it do not be conformed to this world do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good what is acceptable and perfect Paul tells us that we've got to be, we've got to refuse to be conformed to the mindset of this world that's under the sway of Satan, right? This mindset that's characterized by what? It's characterized by self, isn't it? It's characterized by self-deification. Characterized by self-glory and self-direction and self-promotion. Characterized by self-interest and self-obsession. Instead, Paul says, listen, you're to be transformed more and more Every single day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, your mind needs to be continually renewed by the Word of God. Your thinking increasingly shaped and formed by the Word of God. And why is that? It's because what you know in truth informs what you believe. And what you believe informs what you become and how you live. And it is Only as our minds are renewed by the word of God that we will experience what it means to walk in the good and the well-pleasing and the perfecting will of God, right? And then last week, we studied these words from Paul. Look what he says, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says, listen, man, as those who present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice, as those who are seeking to have your mind transformed and not be conformed to this world, but but be transformed more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, as those kinds of people, we ought to be a humble people we ought to be a people of great humility before god we ought to think soberly about who and what we are before the burning holiness of god and we talked about it last week right having a right estimate of who we who we are it's 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 sort of a a middle course between 
absolute disparagement and despair on one hand and exalting pride on the other, right? It's to see ourselves as God defines us. It's to see ourselves as God says we are, who we are and what we are according to the Scripture. And when we look at it, we realize there are many wonderful things that are true of us in Christ, right? Like we are new creatures, new creations in Christ. We've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. By, by faith in the perfect life, in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been delivered from the wrath of God and we've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been reconciled to God. We've been adopted as his sons. We have been, you know, we can now live in a manner that pleases God. We can pursue holiness and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We're given the privilege of prayer and communion with God. We can worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've got the sure promise that God's enduring and steadfast love will never be removed from us and that He is working all things together for our spiritual good. And because He is, we can never lose the salvation that He has given to us. He will ensure that we persevere by the means of grace that He has provided. We can be sure we won't apostatize, not because of ourselves, but because of the faithfulness of God. And our role in this world is to bring glory to Him in everything that we do, right? The mercies of God are incalculable in in their worth. But remember what Paul is getting at. The chief thing in all of this is that everything that we have received is what? By grace. It's by grace. All that we are, we owe to the grace of God. We didn't do anything to earn what we've been given because we earned the opposite. We earned condemnation. We, we didn't desire at all what we've been given. We desired the opposite. We've been given this extraordinary gift, amazing grace. And so there's no ground for boasting in ourselves. There's no ground for, you know, walking around, chest poked out, arrogantly thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. In fact, the only proper response is unqualified and absolute humility, right? Because everything that we have and all that we are is a gift of God's grace. Apart from Him, apart from Him, we are sinful, hell-deserving rebellious, law-breaking wretches, but in Him we're made brand new. And therefore, we ought to be a humble people. We didn't do anything to deserve this. But now this morning, I want us to see what Paul's going to do. He's going to explain to us that our salvation, that our receiving salvation individually must lead us to be an invested, fruitful, and contributing part of the body of Christ. I'm going to say that again. The salvation that we have received must lead us, each one of us, to be an invested, faithful, and contributing part of the body of Christ. Listen, here's the point. The grace of God has not been given to us in order to produce in us a prideful individualism. Are you hearing me? It's not given so that we can pat ourselves on the back and go about our lives disconnected from everybody else. We haven't been saved to be an island unto ourselves. Now that flies directly in the face of American individualism, doesn't it? Doesn't it? 
our libertarian spirit, you know? Just leave me alone, let me be, let me do what I want, and I'm good to go, right? Right? I mean, wouldn't we love if that was the way it is with our government? Hey, just leave me alone, let me live how I want, and you and I will be good, right? Wouldn't it be great if our government bought into that? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But we act that way with everybody else. And this text says, no, that's not an option for you. If you're a Christian, you are a part of a new humanity. You are part of a new people. You are part of a new body. You have become part and member together with other people, united with other believers under the headship and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ from whom we all draw our lives. You've been united to Christ. You've been united to one another in an indivisible union. Each of us has been given grace gifts from God. These supernatural gifts or abilities that are sovereignly bestowed and that are empowered by the Holy Spirit, which we are to use to edify and to enrich and to bless one another, to strengthen, to uphold the body of Christ. And in so doing, to manifest the glory and the power of Christ in His church, both for the good of the church and as a witness to the world. That's what Paul is getting at in this text this morning. How does he push it home? How does he press this point home? Well, the first thing he does is, he describes the church as the body of Christ. And this is a simple, but it is a profound analogy. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, for... As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Paul uses the illustration here of a human body to describe the fundamental nature of the church. And again, it's a simple analogy, right? It's meant to be that way. It's meant for you to go, oh, that makes sense, right? Our bodies are made up of many different members, true? Right? I mean, our our bodies are made up of many different members. We've got eyes, ears, hands and feet, arms and legs. We've got hearts and livers and lungs and sexual organs. But here's the thing about our bodies and all of its constituent parts, right? All of those parts are made up into a integrated and integrated and a unified whole under one control system, right? Our brains, our heads. Not all the parts of our body do the same things. They don't all look alike. It would be quite foolish for us to try to go walking around on our lips or try to sniff cookies with our ears, right? Our bodies do not all look the same. They, the parts of our bodies do not all have the same function, but each part is necessary to a fully functioning and a fully healthy body. True? True? And likewise, Paul's saying, look, you know what? The church is like your body. The church is like your body. There are many members in it. There are many parts in the church, right? But none of us is exactly alike, right? I mean, praise God that's true. We come from different backgrounds. We've got different lineages. We've got different personalities and different eccentricities, some more than others, right? We've got different interests. We've got different gifts and ability. But here's the deal. By God's sovereign purpose, by His sovereign plan, By His sovereign will and His sovereign design, God has placed each of us in Christ. He's joined each of us to Christ and to one another 
under the lordship and the headship of his son. And from many, God has made one unified and integrated whole. We're one body. We are members one with another. We belong to one another. Our lives are intertwined with one another, right? You know the old saying, you you can pick your friends, but you can't pick family, right? That's true in the body of Christ. Look, man, you don't get to pick who's in the family of God, do you? Do you? Did any of us get a vote when God decided to save John Schaefer? Did any of us? Or Richard Booker? Or Gretchen? I mean, did, did any of us get a vote? Were we sitting down like, all right, who's in with Pete Good? Anybody? Anybody? Somebody, please? Anybody? Right? No, of course not. God chooses. And he puts us into the family in the way that he pleases, right? But think about this. You know, it's very easy for us to just consider our salvation in individualistic terms, isn't it? Isn't it? Think about how often we talk about our Christian walk in individualized terms, right? And don't get me wrong, each one of us must personally respond to the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit with personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I don't want to diminish that, right? You've got you've to exercise personal faith in Christ, right, in order to be saved. And each of us individually is justified in Christ. And each of us has forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And each of us individually is a new creation in Christ. We each individually have eternal life in Christ. And God promises to supply each one of our needs in Christ. And each of us will be presented to God perfect in Christ. And each of us enjoys every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, personally and individually. And not one of us can be separated from the love of God in Christ. All that is gloriously and wondrously true, right? For us personally. But Paul means for us to see that not one of us, not a single one of us, is the supreme and singular focus of redemption. None of us is the supreme and singular focus of redemption. We are not just saved for ourselves. We're not singularly unique in the blessing of salvation that we have received. The means and the results of salvation are the same as for anyone else who has believed in Christ. The circumstances may be different, but the elements are all the same, right? And so what he's getting at is this. You haven't been saved just to, just to be an island unto yourself, but you have been saved unto the body of Christ. You've received grace to be enjoyed together. You have been redeemed to be walked out together. You have been justified and experienced the forgiveness of God together. You've experienced the new creation in Christ so that you might live and walk with one another together. We've had all of our needs met together and we will be presented to God perfect in Christ together because we have been loved by God in Christ together. And we've got the same Lord and the same Savior and the same King in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have Him together. By God's grace, we've been placed in Christ together in this local fellowship together and we are individually members one of another. 
Our lives are intertwined with one. What does that mean exactly? You know, there's a sense in which this means that, that we are members together with all who are in Christ from every age, right? That's what that means. That we are one with all those that are in Christ from every single age. The church militant that's on the earth right now and the church triumphant that has gone on to glory. Like Peter says, we have a, a faith of equal standing with all the saints of God throughout history. And so we are on the same team as people like Abraham and David with Isaiah and Peter and James and John. We're one with Paul, with Martin Luther, with John Knox, with John Calvin, with John Owen, with John Newton, with my personal favorite, Charles Spurgeon, with, with John MacArthur and Steve Lawson and R.C. Sproul, on and on it goes. You know those people in the world that like to, you know, name drop about the people that they know or they're related to? Man, we got the best people in the world that we can name drop. We're part with them. We are united to them. Our faith is a faith like theirs. And we are united with them in it. But specifically, what Paul has in mind here is the vital importance of our unity of our part with one another, of our belonging to one another in the local church. Why do I say that? It's because this letter, beloved, was written to a specific congregation, right? It was written to the church in Rome. And so when he talks about being one body here, yes, there is the body of Christ universal, but he's got in focus here the body of Christ expressed in the local church that was in Rome. He's talking about a unity that is established by Almighty God. And he talks about this unity in more detail in other places. We could jump all over Scripture looking at it, but this morning, I just for a moment, I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I want you to turn there. I want you to turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and starting in verse 1. There Paul writes these words. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I'm not going to preach all of this. But I do want to pull a couple of things out of here. I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2 what Paul does here. It's very similar to what we see in Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 12, verses you know, 1 through 3. He describes a great deal of what we've already been talking about, how it is that we ought to live as the people of God, right? He's very clear about that. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, right? But then in verse 3, look, he describes the reason and the rationale behind what he says. He says we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to take note of what Paul says here. He doesn't say create. He doesn't say manufacture. He doesn't say produce. 
Instead, he says, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, here's what he's saying. There is a a profound unity which every true Christian shares with every other true child of God, right? We don't manufacture it. It is a divine reality. It is a unity that has been created by and energized by the Holy Spirit in the people of God. Not just in the church in general, not just in the church universal, but especially in the local church fellowship. A unity with other believers in this church, in this, these pews. It's not a theoretical unity, right? It's an actual one. And it's a unity that exists because Paul says there's only one body of Christ, one true body of the Lord Jesus Christ, one body that shares in the same Holy Spirit that has been united by that same work which the Holy Spirit does in each one of us and by the fact that he indwells every single Christian. It's a unity that that is established by that one hope that we have to which we've been called, which is the hope of eternal life and eternal fellowship with Almighty God. It's a unity that is rooted in the fact that we share one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have one faith, the everlasting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one genuine body of truth and Christian doctrine in the Word of God. We share in one baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings us into the family of God. We have one God and one Father of us all, Yahweh, the great I Am. We're one body. As John Stott says, there can be only one Christian family. Only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism. And only one Christian body. Because there is only one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God indivisible? Then so is the unity of the church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. What he's getting at is this. There is an intrinsic unity. There is a oneness. There is an unbreakable relationship that has been forged by God. Each of us, members with one another. And we didn't make it. We didn't create it. We don't fashion it. You don't, you know, you don't fashion this through artificial means. It's not something that we seek to create. But we must maintain it. We must do nothing to injure it. Or mar it. Or ruin the actual unity and fellowship that God has forged between us. We need to be mindful of our unity, beloved. Mindful of the fact that we have been united together in something far greater than any individual, any single person among us. But then later in the same chapter, I want you to notice this. Paul tells us, right, that, that Christ has given to the church these specific teaching gifts. And he mentions them by name, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, right? And he says that they've been given, look at it, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain, attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we attain to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, that is, member, which which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, what's the point? What Paul is saying is, first, there's an intrinsic unity that we must maintain, right? But then he also says here, there's a unity that we need to attain. In other words, there's a unity that we need to strive for. There's a unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's not just merely head knowledge. That, that word there means experiential knowledge. There is a, a unity of the faith and an experiential knowledge of the Son of God. A unity in that that we're to strive for. And God has provided what we need for that. He has given us the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. They're essential to that taking place. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, well, that job, the job of of bringing about that unity and, and that growth and everything, that's just the job of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. He doesn't say that. He expands this picture to the whole body, right? Look at it again. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, every member with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, when each member is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, how does that take place? How do we, how do we attain the unity of the faith in a real way? How do we come to maturity? How do we come to the measure and the status of, of Christ? How do we, how are we made grounded and established in the truth? How do we grow up into Christ? How is the church built up in love? Here's how. It's not by each one of us only being on focus, being focused on what we can get. What I can come here to church and have what what itch I can get scratched and what need I can get satisfied. It's not found in each one of us just coming here with a mercenary heart to get what we can get or get what we can get with our family and then get out of Dodge. That's not how it happens. It is by each of us having... A proper view of the church and our place in it. It is by each one of us, each part working properly and fulfilling its role in the body of Christ and making it grow. It's by each one of us being fully invested in the body. I'm going to say something to you, and I hope it makes some of you very uncomfortable. You need to stop treating the church like a movie theater. You need to stop treating the church like a movie theater where you gather together with a bunch of people that you don't really know and that you're not really invested in and you watch the show and then you go home. It's not a lecture hall in college where you come and you hear the lecture and you talk with a few people that are seated around you and then you leave. It's not just some place to go on Sundays and on Wednesdays to get your needs met through the various functions and programs that the church is supposed to provide. Church isn't an organization. The church isn't Walmart. Thank God. The church is not self-serve gas station. Church isn't an organization. Beloved, it's an organism. It's the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ, all of us together with one another. And we must never take lightly the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ because it costs Christ His life to create His church. And what we share with one another in this body 
is an inheritance in a union that is so great and it's so profound that it surpasses everything else. I will be Gretchen's husband for a season. I will be her brother in Christ for eternity. It's greater than anything else. Beloved, we exist to magnify the glory of God together. We exist to put on display Christ's majesty together. We exist to demonstrate the power of the gospel, to save sinners together, the power of the gospel to break down divisions and to join together and to create bonds of love between people that would never exist in any other way. Have you ever thought about that? And all this comes to fruition, beloved, as each one of us uses our gifts that God has given to us to bless and serve one another and to manifest the fullness of Christ in this fellowship. Each one of us matters for the sake of the whole. Each of us plays an essential part in the health and in the unity and in the strength of God's body and no one, or Christ's body, and no one is unimportant. Paul says over in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in 14, verse 14, these words, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But we don't all have the same gifts, right? We don't all have the same abilities. But each one of us has been gifted by God. And we've been placed here deliberately by God, by His design and His purpose, in order to build up and sustain His people and to display Christ's glory in the church. And so we've got to stop thinking individualistically and start thinking corporately about the church. So that's why Paul tells us here to use the gifts that God has given to us for the sake of the body. Look at it. Starting in verse 6, he says, Having gifts that differ... According to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, we're to use our gifts for the, for the sake of the body. And for the good of the church and for the testimony of Christ in the world. So let me just say a few things before we go any further about our gifts, okay? Let me just say a few things. Just some rapid fire statements that I want you to hear about our gifts. Some just straight up, just straight truths and facts about them. And then we'll look at each one of these gifts individually. Number one, Paul's implication here is that every single one of us who's a Christian has been given a gift that's to be used for the edification of the body. In other words, nobody is giftless, okay? None of us is that, 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 that poor, sad sack that doesn't have a gift. Every single one of us has been given a gift by God to be used for His glory. Second, we are commanded to use those gifts and not to defraud the rest of the body because we belong one to another. It's not okay to have a gift that God has given 
for the health and for the well-being and for the encouragement of your brother or your sister in Christ and keep it to yourself. You can't do that because in doing that, you defraud your brother and your sister of what you have been given for their good. Third, these are gifts of God's grace. They are supernatural abilities that are sovereignly bestowed by God for the purpose of strengthening his saints and ministering to and edifying one another. And God is the one who sovereignly gives them for the good of his body. He determines what Christian receives any gift or combination of the gifts. He's the one that determines that. In God's design, no true church will lack the gifts that it needs. And if it does, God ensures that he will provide them. Fourth, these gifts are given for the good of the church. They're not given for your personal use. They're not given for your advancement. They're not given to exalt you and bring fame to your name. They're not given so that you can get a little spot on TV. They're not given so that you can sell them for $1,000 a pop. They're not given so that you can use them to exalt yourself and bring fame to your name, but rather they're given so you can exalt the name of Jesus Christ by strengthening His people. Fifth, God will provide to the Christian every gift he needs for the work that God is calling him to. God will never call you to a work in which he will not provide for you the gifts that you need to accomplish it. Sixth, a Christian's effective use of his gifts, a Christian's effective use of his gifts depends on a growing relationship with his head, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of us, if our gifts are to be effective, must be exercised in the power of the grace that God provides so that they might be used in an effective and a meaningful way. They're to be stirred up and exercised, and they ought to mature in their expression. Seventh, no person, no one person has all the gifts. If they did, they would be Christ, who is the summation of all of these gifts. And then eighth and last, because these gifts are given by God's grace, none of us has room to boast, right? No matter what gift you have, none of us has room to boast, okay? I guess that was several, not a few. All right, so there you go, right? So why does, why does Paul list these seven gifts that he does right here? Obviously, this isn't an exhaustive list. So why does Paul list set these seven gifts specifically right here? And nobody can say with certainty. But beloved, I, I believe it's that, it's that because these are the seven most essential gifts in order for the church to be edified and strengthened and to display the glory of Christ in our midst. These are the seven most essential gifts. So what are they? Let's take them one by one. He speaks first of the gift of prophecy, saying, if you've got the gift of prophecy, you do it in proportion to our faith. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. What is prophecy? What is it? Sometimes we think of prophecy as strictly foretelling, right? You know, you predict the future, right? You're like some kind of Nostradamus. You throw out your Urim and the Thummim and you figure out what the future has to hold, right? People think they know more about the future than they do, right? I'm a big football fan, so I've been watching, you know, the mock drafts for the NFL, and nobody got even like 10% of it right. We think we know more than we do. And we tend to think of prophecy as just foretelling, like there's stuff off in the future, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm gifted to tell you what it is. But at its heart, that's not what prophecy means. Prophecy at its heart is just the gift of proclaiming. It is the gift of heralding. It is the gift of declaring 
forth the words of God. Prophets in the scriptures, whether it was in the Old Testament or the New, they instructed and they exhorted. They warned and rebuked. They encouraged and commanded. They called for faithful worship and obedience and repentance and faith. They promoted reverence. They promoted righteousness. They condemned sin. They preached the word of God unapologetically. They spoke about judgment and they spoke about blessing. And it wasn't always or even mostly new revelation. Sometimes it was, but at its heart, it was God-empowered proclamation, giving forth the message of God, taking the word of God and unfolding it under the unction of the Holy Spirit and preaching it with boldness. Now, in our day, in our day of a completed canon of the Holy Scriptures, we would call this the gift of preaching, to take the word of God, to stand before a congregation and to declare the apostles' doctrine, that faith that was once once for all delivered to the saints. And the point of it, 1 Corinthians 14, 3 tells us, is for the upbuilding and the encouragement and the consolation of God's people. Or as Steve Lawson puts it, to build up and to fire up and then to hold up. In other words, the gift of preaching is essential to the body of Christ. And here's why. It's because in the faithful use of that gift that the voice of Jesus Christ is heard by his people. And it's by that that the church is edified and enlightened and equipped and motivated and strengthened to prosper and to endure in this present evil age. It's by this gift that the church is encouraged and supported and reassured. It provides, this gift does, a sure foundation for life and for comfort in trials and for certainty in the midst of shifting tides in times. But the gift of preaching, the gift of prophecy, beloved, it must always be rooted in the Word of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, or listen to me, the preacher will be nothing more than a worthless windbag like an Andy Stanley or a Stephen Furtick or a Joel Osteen or a motivational speaker. In fact, one more thing I want you to see here. Paul says that those that have the gift of prophecy must exercise it, how? In proportion to our faith, right? What does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean in proportion to the, to, to our subjective faith, how much we believe or, or does it have to do with our faith, our objective faith that's declared in the word of God? Well, you know, a lot of guys have debated over that. Honestly, if you just examine the text, the controversy is eliminated. The word that's translated here as our is a definite article, right? Like the, the, right? A definite article. It's speaking of something that is objective. It's a definite article. And the word that is translated here as proportion means in relation to or in accordance with. So what Paul is saying is this. When somebody gets up to preach the word of God, when he stands before the people of God to proclaim the word of God, then what he speaks, the what, what he prophesies, what he preaches must be in accordance with the doctrines of the Christian faith, the apostles' doctrine. It must square with the scripture or he needs to sit down and shut up. That's what that means. It must be faithfully derived from. It must be in agreement with the revealed word of God. The one who exercises the gift of prophecy has no right to go beyond the scripture, to go beyond the teaching of Christ. 
And if he does, you should reject him. You should kick him out of the pulpit. The Apostle John puts it like this. In 2 John, verses 9 through 11. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The one with the gift of prophecy is not to engage in speculative theology. He's to be tethered to the revelation that God has given to us in the Scriptures. He must only speak what God has given him to speak and everything that God has given him to speak. In other words, not holding back difficult truth, but preaching the whole counsel of God. That's the first gift that Paul mentions. It is absolutely indispensable and essential to the health of the body of Christ. Then Paul says, if in service, if service in our serving. Now, what's he saying here? Now, it's true, isn't it, that all of us are called to serve in some capacity in the body of Christ? Isn't that true? Isn't that, go like this. It's true, right? But there are those with this special gift, this, this divine gift of service, who have been given the, the gift of seeing what needs to be done, and then they just do it. They see what needs to be done. They see what needs to be accomplished. And then they just do it. Some people don't have that gift. Like when it comes to cleaning a house, I do not have that gift. Like when my wife walks into a room, she see, like it's just got like spidey sense, you know? Like she could be looking just straight ahead, but she has spidey sense for everything that is out of position. Everything that is not where it is supposed to be, Right? And then all of a sudden, like a whirling dervish, she spins through that room, putting everything in the appropriate spot and leaving it pristine and before moving on to the next room. I don't have that gift at all. I walk into a room, if there's a place to sit, I'm good, right? Like, I, 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 don't, I, I don't have that gift. My sons do not have that gift. I'm not even sure my daughter has that gift, right? It, it, it's just a special gift, right? And the idea here is, look, somebody that's got the gift of service, they just are able to see what needs done. And they don't complain about something that needs done. They don't go and tell, you know, somebody else, you know, this really needs to be done. They don't, you know, wait for somebody else to do it. They don't talk it to death. They don't find all the reasons why they can't do something. They just do it, right? I love those kind of people. I love those kinds of people. They just put their hands to the work of ministry. They don't care about recognition. They care about results. They're the ones that make and take meals. They're the ones that clean up somebody's home. They're the ones who help care for somebody else's children, who step in when they're crises. They're the ones who do repairs around the church and set up and tear down after potlucks and serve behind the scenes in corporate worship. They're the ones that serve in extended session and change out lights and they do a myriad of other things that go unnoticed until they're left undone. People with that gift, they are a great blessing to the body of Christ. A church can never have too many servants. Paul then talks about the one who teaches in his teaching. Now in all of its various forms, the root meaning of the word teach here carries with it the idea of systematic teaching or systematic training. Now here's the deal, right? Everybody who preaches should also be able to teach. That goes along with preaching, right? But the idea here is that there are those in the body of Christ whom God is gifted to be able to take the word of God and to, to break it open and to explain it with clarity. 
with accuracy and with depth. It's not just surface kind of stuff, but they can sit down and they can explain to you what the Word of God is teaching here. They have the gift to open up the meaning of the Word of God. They don't just wing it. They read and they study. They invest time. They invest hours in reading and studying the Scriptures in order to understand it. And then they explain and apply it to his or her students. Beloved, I'm going to tell you, that gift is essential in edifying and instructing the church and growing the church in her understanding of God and of the gospel in in, in instructing the church in faithful living and grounding her in the faith and enabling Christians to give an answer for the hope that is in them. There's a great big trend these days. It's been going on for quite a while to just get rid of Sunday school. We don't need Sunday school. Sunday school is so old school. It's not cool. It's not hip. All we need is, you know, to have several services in the morning and for the preacher to preach his 10-minute sermon. And, you know, that's all people really need. I'm going to tell you something. A strong preaching ministry must be accompanied by a strong teaching ministry if the saints are going to persevere in the faith and persevere to the end you can't get enough of the word of god it's essential an essential gift to the church then paul speaks of the one who exhorts in his exhortation again we're all called to encourage and exhort one another right the writer of hebrews tells us that we are to consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works right not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near but this gift the gift of of exhortation this is the guy this is the woman who is gifted in a special way to encourage to challenge, to warn, to comfort, to motivate, to lift up those who have lost heart, to encourage and to stir people up to serve the Lord or pursue God's will for their lives in a way that is not annoying or nagging, but is welcome. It's a wide-ranging gift. It's the Mike Lindell pillow guy gift, right? It's the gift that at one time might be used to encourage a believer and admonish them to turn from sin. And then at a later time, to encourage that same person to continue in pursuing holiness. A gift might be used to admonish the church as a whole to to obedience to the Word. It's a gift that, that is used to call believers to obey and follow the truth and to live as Christians are supposed to live consistent with God's revealed will. This is what I like to call the cheerleader gift. This is the one that hears what's being preached in the pulpit and hears what's being taught in the teaching ministry and is consistently encouraging not only themselves, but their brothers and their sisters around them to take that stuff to heart and live in the way and to believe in the way that that preaching and that teaching is calling you to do. It's necessary. It's absolutely indispensable for the life of the church so that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only then paul talks about those with the gift of giving he says those the one who contributes in generosity again all christians are called to give faithfully and cheerfully right we are called to give and we should but the idea here is that there are some who have a special gift of giving sometimes they're well off but honestly it's not always the richest people 
In my experience as a preacher, quite often it's not. Sometimes it's those who are far less wealthy than others that have the gift of giving. And so even out of their limited resources, they find ways to give. They make sure that needs are met. They make sure that there's not a shortfall. They make sure that if there's a need in the youth ministry and I can provide it, here you go. If there's a need in the children's ministry and I can provide it, here you go. If there's a brother or sister in Christ that is in need and I've got the means by which I can give and help them out, here you go. They're the kind of people that give, that, that find ways to give. They look for ways to give. And they give cheerfully and they give gladly to bless other people. In fact, the word generosity there in a moral sense means it it describes sincerity. Those who give in sincerity and with the absence of hypocrisy and with the absence of exaggeration, say, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, for example, right? Who the Spirit of God killed for trying to appear more generous than they were. Generosity carries with it the idea of sincere and heartfelt giving. It's untainted by affectation or ulterior motive. In fact, generosity could be translated here as simplicity. And all that means is, is that you give for the glory of God and in obedience to Christ and just for the joy of giving without anything else in your mind. Again, the church needs this gift in the body. It's going to be healthy and vibrant. And then... Paul speaks of the one who leads with zeal. The leader, the guy that's got the gift, the woman that's got the gift of leadership is the person that, well, the word leader means to go, the leadership means to one who goes before. Just one who goes before. And and this gift is the gift that enables a person to take charge of a group and to lead that group in a positive and a fruitful direction. Sort of like the lead dog on a sled team, right? It's like the person that can organize and gather the group and then lead them in a proper direction. And not by, you know, not by whipping and and, and everything else, but just by example leading, right? People with the gift of leadership have glad followers. If If you're a good leader, you've got glad followers. If you've got unhappy leaders, you're a dictator. But the idea is, is the people with this gift, they're quick to take leadership but they're also quick to take the responsibility that goes along with it. There's a local football coach. I'm not going to call him by name. But the one thing that annoyed me the most about this guy, anytime I ever had any interactions with him after the team lost was, he would continually blame the players. It was always the players' fault. Now, they would regularly have kids at the end of the season, several of them, that would be on the all-district and all-region and all-state team. But if they lost a game, it was never the coach's fault. It was always the player's fault. That is a failure of leadership. The idea of a leader here is somebody that, yes, takes response or takes the authority, but also takes the responsibility that goes along with it. They can organize and motivate to a specific end. They see the situation clearly. They, they are able to, you know, to orient the, the group properly, to avoid possible pitfalls, to navigate hardships, and they're willing to make personal sacrifices that are necessary for the good of the team. Paul says that the one who leads should do so with zeal. That is, they ought to do their work eagerly and gladly. They ought to put their hands to the plow with energy and with full commitment, without quitting, without any thought of throwing in the towel. Now, why would Paul mention the need for zeal when it comes to spiritual leadership? Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't you think that any spiritual leader would be a zealous spiritual leader? Wouldn't you think that? 
Here's why. Here's why. It's because leadership can be hard. It's because leadership can be taxing and it can be painful at times. It's because leadership makes you a target. It's because leadership can be costly. And it's because the rewards of spiritual leadership quite often are not immediately evident in this lifetime. It's a great gift of God that he would provide to his church the blessing of faithful, sacrificial, selfless leadership because without it, the church would founder in this world. And then last, Paul speaks of the one who does mercy, that they do it with cheerfulness. Again, like some of the other gifts, we're all called to be merciful, but the person with the gift of mercy is that person that is just specially gifted by God to sympathize and empathize with others, to express compassion and kindness and concern for those who are in need. They just naturally gravitate to people that are in physical and emotional or spiritual distress in order to encourage them or help them or alleviate their problem or, or bear their burdens with them however they can. They're just drawn to people. Like They're drawn to the people, say, that are on the fringes of, of the fellowship of the church in order to bring them in. They're drawn to those that are new in the body to help them become grounded in the fold, right? They are, they are granted by God with emotional strength and energy to minister mercy in a powerful way. And so they do it with cheerfulness. They're the ones that are always smiling. They're the ones, it seems, that are always upbeat. They're the ones that are happy and that they're glad. They just love caring for other people. In fact, that word cheerfulness is a word that's used of daylight. And the idea is these are the kinds of people that have this gift that are like sunshine to a hurting soul. And they don't complain about the imposition. They're never annoyed that that they need to put themselves out to help somebody else. They never make manifesting this gift seem like a pain or a nuisance to the one whom they're caring for. They just genuinely love other people. And they're an absolute blessing to the church. All these gifts, right? All these gifts in their proper proportions are essential gifts for the church so that it will be edified so that we would be strengthened, so that we would be built up in the grace of God. They make these, these gifts, when, when we use them in the body of Christ, they make the fragrant presence of the Lord Jesus to be tangible and substantial and to be unmistakable in our fellowship. They build us up. They grow us in unity in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They mature us and they establish us and they ground us. So they're not tossed to and fro. They equip us. They build us up in love and they display the glory of Christ and his faithful nurturing love to us. The grace of God is not just that he would save us and then leave us on our own to to just, you know, make our way the best we can through the wilderness of this world. But instead, he saves us, he puts us together in a body, and then he gifts to each one of us some gift or combination of gifts that are to be used to build up the body of Christ and encourage one another and make us strong and prepare us and stir us up for good works until the day that we see Christ face to face. He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't left us orphans. He's made us part of his family. And as we minister these gifts to one another, Christ is manifested in our presence. The ministry that he did when he was on the earth is reproduced in his body as we use the gifts that he has given to us that are supremely in him alone. Do you ever think about that? All these gifts that we just mentioned, they're all found in Christ. Every single one of them, right? When you think about prophecy, 
the gift of preaching. You see it in the way that Jesus said, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given it, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus didn't go around preaching on his own. He preached what the Father told him to preach. Service we see in the way that Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Teaching, right? That's a gift that, that Christ had remarkably, right? I mean, we remember how he would go around and teach in the synagogues and everybody always said, man, he teaches with an authority unlike anybody else. We see it in the way that he taught his disciples to pray and taught them to avoid the Pharisees and taught them of the Holy Spirit and taught them to abide in him. We see exhortation in the way that Jesus encouraged his disciples to faithfulness, how he, you know, challenged their foolish notions. How he comforted their fears as he was about to be crucified. How he promised them his unfailing presence to the end. Giving in the way that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Like Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. His leadership. The gift of leadership in the way that he said to his disciples, follow me. And they did. The way that we follow Christ, looking to him as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We see the gift of mercy in the way that he cleansed lepers and healed the sick and raised the dead. And ultimately, his mercy in taking our place and giving us forgiveness in life. Every gift is found in perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we use those gifts that he's given to us, We make his glory to be seen in the church and in the world. John Owen wrote, Spiritual gifts are that without which the church cannot subsist in the world. Nor can believers be useful unto one another and the rest of mankind unto the glory of Christ as they ought to be. They, the gifts, are the powers of the world to come. Those effectual operations of the power of Christ whereby his kingdom was erected and is preserved. And that leads me to close with some serious questions for y'all, for me. It leads me to ask some serious and penetrating questions. I want to ask you, and I want you to be honest. Are you an invested, an invested, and a faithful part of this body? Not do you worship here. Not do you come and hold down a pew on a Sunday morning. But are you actively engaged? Are you serving Are you participating in the body of believers? Are you part of the body of Christ? An indispensable part, are you? What are you doing with the gift that God gave you? Are you using it for His glory? Or are you like the ones who were given the talents? Have you dug a hole in the ground and stuffed it in there and just kept it there until the day that Jesus returns? Are you using the gifts that you've been given by God for His glory or are you letting it go to waste? I'm saying to you, I'm challenging you today. In fact, I'm commanding you in the name of Christ. Don't be a consumer. Be a giver. Don't be a consumer only. Be a giver. Use the gifts that the Spirit of God has given to you for His glory and for the edification of the body. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, well, I would do that, but I don't know what my gifts are. What are my gifts? How do I know my gifts? Some of you that are older will remember back in the day there used to be those spiritual gift tests. Remember those? Remember those spiritual gift tests? You'd sit down. It was like taking, you know, the SAT. You'd sit down and you'd be asked questions and you'd, you know, fill in a dot and fill in a dot and fill in a dot. And then at the end, you know, magically it would tell you what your gifts were. You know what I found out? You could game that thing real easy, right? 
All you had to do was read the question and decide whether or not you wanted that gift. Is that the one I want? Not really. That does not apply to me. No, never. Not even occasionally, right? And you could game that thing. And you could get a variety of gifts that you thought you wanted. Listen, you can't get the own gift. You can't get the gifts you want. Okay? You can't. Just like you don't get the physical gifts you want, you don't get the spiritual gifts you want, right? You don't. But how do you know what your gift is? Can I tell you what? It is not nearly as complicated, I don't believe, as people sometimes make it. The roadmap is right here. How do you know what your gift is? Well, one, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Two, be renewing your mind in the word of God. Three, seek to obey him in the strength that he supplies. Four, look around to see where you might be of service in the body. And God will show you what he has given you to do. And he will supply the gifting and the strength that you need to do it. And all you need to do is just do it. Will you always hear God properly? Maybe not. It might take a brother or sister in Christ saying, you know, the one with the gift of exhortation, that gift's not for you, man. I'm sorry. But I do think that maybe this is where God has gifted you. Every one of us needs to be serving an invested part of this church. Not in again, out again, on again, off again. Fully invested for the glory of God. It's not up to a few people to carry the weight for everyone. It's for all of us to use the gifts that we've been given and then to do for the body what God has given us to do for the praise of His glory. Listen, none of us can be givers until we have first received the greatest gift that comes from God Himself, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has given, God has given to the world the greatest gift imaginable. And we've got to receive that gift by faith. That is the essential, you know, ground of it all. That's where it all begins, right? God gave His Son to do for us what we could not do, dead and corrupted as we are in our sins. He gave His Son to live a life of sinless perfection, to completely obey the law of God, to satisfy the will of God in every single way so that the Father could say of Him, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that every single one of us deserves, but none of us could endure. He died the death under the penalty of our sin, wearing and shouldering Our sins, past, present, and future, original and actual sin, and he suffered and he died under the wrath of Almighty God, under the wrath of his Father. And then, praise God, he rose again on the third day. And he proved that his sacrifice was not only effectual, but it was complete. And he proved, he was proved by that resurrection to be the Son of God in power. And God raised him to his right hand and seated him at his right hand in heaven until he makes his enemies his footstool and until he returns in power to complete the salvation of his people and to take us to himself forever in glory. That's the gift that God has given to this world. The gift that God has given to this world of sinners. But it's a gift that must be received. 
It's a gift that must be received by the one who says and realizes, man, I am a lost sinner. I am in complete defiance of God Almighty. I have broken His law repeatedly. I have not regarded His holiness at all. I have not sought to obey His word in the least. I am a sinner. But I know Christ came to save what? Sinners. And so... Knowing my need, knowing the fate I deserve, I am calling upon you, Jesus, that your life and your death and your resurrection would save me, a sinner. I turn away from that foolish life that I thought would get me something. And I believe wholly and only in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I give up the rights to my life. My life belongs to you now and forever. Before you can be a giver in the body of Christ, you must first have received the gift that God has given in Christ. And if you're here today and you do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, I am pleading with you to come and to speak with one of our elders. I'm pleading with you to, if you're a lady, you can come and speak to Gretchen. If you have questions or you need clarification, and if you don't, I am pleading with you where you are to cry out, to call out to Jesus Christ in sincerity to forgive you. Call upon him in faith and sincerity to save your soul. And his promise is, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for these words. I'm grateful, Lord God, for the challenge that it puts before us. The reminder of who, as Christians, we are. That we're not individuals. We're not doing a rugged individualism quest. Father, we're part of a body. We're members one of another. We belong to each other. And our responsibility is the gifts you've given to us are are to minister to our brothers and our sisters in Christ for the good of the church and for the fame of Christ's name in this earth. I pray that you would, Father, make us to take seriously what it means to be invested, to be an invested part of the body of Christ, to be a serving part of the body of Christ, to be a faithful, diligent part of the body of Christ, that we would seek to do that. And Father, I pray for those that are here this morning. They're drawn to the body of Christ. They love what they see here, but they need to begin at the first point, and that's with the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his life and death and his resurrection, the power of the gospel accomplished to save sinners. I pray that you would bring those in this room who have not fully trusted in Christ to faith in Jesus today. Help us all, Lord God, to respond to these questions that we need to ask. Am I invested part of this body? Am I using my gifts or am I wasting them? Do I know what my gift is? How am I seeking to make the body of Christ stronger by the grace of God in me? Lord, stir in our midst now our response. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.